Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. Um, in today's episode, you will learn how to set up a one-year strategic marketing plan so you can get shit done with your team uh, and lead your team effectively as well. Uh, we're not necessarily only going to talk about a one-year strategic marketing plan. We'll also talk about marketing strategy in general and, and, and how to lead a team uh, with this. Uh, so my guest today comes from a company I really deeply admire, and I don't say that lightly, Buffer, uh, which is, you know, the social scheduling platform who are very uh, well known for their transparency. Uh, so they are the reason why I actually started a remote consulting company a few years ago that failed, but that's another story. And why I'm working remotely right now, actually, with Hotjar, that's when I discovered that companies like Buffer were, were working remotely. So my guest started as a content writer, and I've worn many hats since then, product marketer, partnership, social copywriter and manager, and he's now the director of marketing for Buffer, managing a team of 10 people. And Buffer is a company receiving more than a million visits a month on their blog, which is quite an impressive fit. So, Kevin Lee, welcome aboard. Thank you, Louis. Great to be here. So everyone talks about strategy, right? I mean, I read it almost on every single blog post or blog I visit. Like people talk about this one strategy you should use to growth hack your success or, you know, three strategies you should use tomorrow to do X, Y, and Z. So without giving too much about my opinion about the word strategy and what it actually means, I'd like to hear from you. What does it mean to you, strategy? Yeah, one of my teammates put it quite succinctly for me once in this analogy. She said that there's, we're trying to decide the difference between vision and strategy and tactics because oftentimes we use these words interchangeably or people assume one thing and someone else says another. And the analogy she uses is that the vision is where you're going, the strategy is how you're going to get there, and the tactics are the turn-by-turn -turn directions. And that was very clarifying for me. I'm able to now filter those words into like a nice tidy box. So yeah, strategy for me is if, if you already figured out where you're going to go, strategy is how you're going to get there. So as part of my role, I, I both need to figure out where we're going and how we're getting there. And then I like to pass along the, the tactics, the what to the team itself. So yeah, strategy is kind of the, the car we're driving or the, the route we're taking to get to our destination. And it's as much as where you're going, it's, it's also where you're not going and, and what you're not going to do, right? Exactly. Yes, exactly. So when we think of marketing strategy, so you summarize it quite well and quite simply. So vision is, is where you're planning to go. Strategy is how you're going to get there. And Correct. tactics are, repeat, so that's... The turn-by-turn -turn directions. The turn-by-turn yes. -turn directions, <laughs> exactly. Right. And so when we think about it, it's a kind of an empty world to a lot of people. And it's like, why is it needed? Why, why do we even need to set up a marketing strategy when we lead a marketing team or, or a strategy when you lead a business? Like, why is it important for you in your role to have a marketing strategy? Yeah, that's a good one. So I, I came up through the tactics. Like I started as a writer for our blog. And so I was very much in the day-to-day -day details. And having been in that world for many years, and how easy it is to get tunnel vision and just to be very consumed by the work and not be able to pick your head up and see, oh, where do we actually end up? I picture like like you're tunneling through the ground and like you're you could be the world's best tunneler, but if you never stick your head out of the tunnel and you know might not know if you're actually headed in the right direction or not. So strategy is having this 
is how we're going to get there. Vision is where we're going. Like having these components, it helps make the work feel more purposeful, makes the work feel like you're headed down the right track. Ideally, there's these outcomes that you want to achieve. And on the day-to-day basis, they could be an outcome of, you know, ship a blog post or write this email. But bigger, bigger picture, like a vision could be to change the world for remote workers or teach someone a skill they didn't have before. And then how to get there is maybe choosing it, which channels to, to go into like these bigger decisions. And it all kind of trickles down into the work that you're doing on a day-to-day basis. So without that strategy, without that vision, I guess some of the work feels a bit aimless. And I didn't realize that until I was figuring out strategy and vision, like the actual importance of that kind of stuff. So tell me more about this, because I can feel there is a turning point in your career where you switch from being very tactical to having to think strategically, right? Especially yeah. as a writer. I mean, I don't want to insult you, but I know from experience, talking with a lot of writers, they probably don't have a lot of time to think strategy. You know, they have to deliver yeah. blog posts every single day, right? So <laughs> yeah. when did you discover that setting up strategy, setting a vision was really important? I think I'm still in the process of reminding myself that it's important. To a degree, strategy kind of feels like one of those I guess strategy feels somewhat a bit more art than science, which I often I struggle with I struggle with both art and science. I prefer like very very tangible things. So science is a bit more tangible to me, I guess you can quantify it, you can measure it. Yeah, so strategy is, is kind of an ongoing debate within myself. It's like how much what impact is this strategy actually having? And and spending time thinking about strategy is so hard to prioritize when there's so much other work to be done. And so that's a huge struggle that I have is like, oh, how can I spend a week talking and thinking about strategy when I could have been spending a week writing this or putting this campaign together or measuring this or that or the other thing. So I have to remind myself that, you know, one week of strategy setting is makes a huge difference for the 10 people I manage. It makes a huge difference for the work they do for the whole year. And so it's a different way of measuring productivity, I guess, when you are at the strategic level, because you don't get the feedback right away. You don't get that feeling, that, that dopamine rush of hitting send or publish on something. So I get that it's important. It's still very hard to prioritize and feel good about actually spending the time doing it. So when did you start actually, when was the first time you went through this exercise of setting up a strategy for your team? Let's see. I've been directing the team for a couple of years now. Honestly, when I started, when I was started leading the team, I don't think I did strategy for several months. I think I looked to other people in the company to set marketing strategy for me, or I just stayed on the same marketing strategy that we had before and just stayed on that same path. So it probably took me maybe even a year into the, the lead role to actually sit down and think, oh, I need to actually be thinking about the strategy that we have. Does it make sense for us still to be doing content marketing after so many years? Like I didn't even realize you could reach a, a ceiling on content marketing and should I even be considering this kind of thing? So all these questions I didn't even know to ask and obviously didn't know the answers to at the time. Yeah, I'd say it took about a year before I was fully on board with strategy. I mean, I'm not on board with it yet. A year to start getting on board, (laughs) to buy my ticket for it. Um, What was the process for you? What was the the way you you set out to to say, okay, you know what? We're going to have a strategy for Buffer in like 2017, 2018, and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. How did you do that? Yeah, I think like you said at the opening, you can hear a lot of advice out there for you should do this strategy or you should try this thing and you should be doing this type of work. And that's absolutely true. There's so many different templates out there to look at and, and companies to emulate. 
And one of the things that I've tried to do in my life and career, it's, it's a, a parenting philosophy that I've adopted to a marketing philosophy is um, that you, you never should on your kids and you never should on your marketers or your, your plans. And so whenever I hear that word should, it's always a trigger for me. Like, Oh, like I don't like should is I don't ever want to feel like I should have to do anything. Um, it should be a choice. It should be me figuring it out on my own. So that was kind of how I went the strategy route. Like there's a lot of different templates to follow. I looked at many of them. Some of them were like, this is the way that you should be doing it. And I, I challenged that notion a little bit. And maybe immaturely, I pushed back at being told what to do in some ways. <laughs> so like I wasn't going to go that route. And uh, yeah, then I stumbled across this one. It's one that's been pretty, pretty useful for us. It's a one-year strategic marketing plan. And it was originally from a guy named David Cummings and just kind of took his template and ran with it. And it was, honestly, it was useful for someone who hadn't had a background in strategy to have a template to follow. I think that made it more, it felt like I was shipping something at the end. Like I could follow a blueprint and feel like I had done something by the end of it, rather than just sitting there and thinking, oh, maybe this is strategy. So the template helped a lot, especially the first time around. So I think in the next few minutes, what we're going to do is we're going to go through this, this template and trying to look back at the time where you, you set up a strategy for Buffer, how you went about it, maybe the mistakes you learned from it and how you would, you know, tell listeners how, like how to do the same exercise, right? Like how, trying to really go about it step by step. What should you do first? So maybe you can run through the template you use in terms of the different items that are there briefly, and then we can dive into how you actually agree on each of them, because I suppose it's not chronological. You don't follow each one by one. You don't yeah, do them definitely. one by one. Yep, exactly. So the, the marketing plan, it has a few different sections. It starts with the purpose, and this is like the company team purpose, like why are you doing what you're doing? I guess it's a bit of vision in that sense. There's a core value section, so what values guide the work that you do, the target demographic for your product, the promise of your brand, like a... 200 words on what the brand is, an elevator pitch, which is a bit longer. So it lets you get to go into a bit more detail. Basically the pitch you give someone if you only have an elevator ride to convince them to use your product. And then some numbers. So a three-year target where you want to be in three years, where you want to be at in the current year, and then goals and priorities. So you can break it down based on cycles or quarters, however you, you work with your team. And perhaps could you give us an example from from Buffer, maybe not all, all the ones, but at least I would say the purpose, core values, target demographic. I think people would, because most listeners I know know of Buffer, probably would be nice to put that in perspective. So what's, what's Buffer's pur purpose at the minute? Yeah, so the purpose is to give people a greater voice on social media. At the minute, the purpose is, has shifted a little bit to, be, um, to help small businesses grow. So it's somewhat of an aspirational idea that you want to get at, a bit bigger than maybe the exact benefit of using the product. So we, we kind of try to zoom out a little bit when it comes to the purpose setting. And then your values, I suppose. I, I remember you updated your values recently, even posted it on the mm -hmm. blog. So what are kind of like the, your top three values, would you say? Yeah, for the values exercise, we're lucky that the company has a set of values too. So we could have just cribbed off of those. That would have been nice and fast and easy. But basically we took those and we said, well, what is, given this template, this foundation of values, how do we conduct our work like what is it what difference does it does it look like within our marketing team and so we ended up with a few we had high quality work we had honest authentic a uh, few others and then a, a big key for us is always do the right thing for our customers and community so maybe an overall would, guide would be empathy is the probably the theme of the values there 
And then your target demographic, because you said, yeah, you're switching a bit from to help small businesses grow. Recently, you, you expanded your, your offering with like a buffer reply or respond. Was it which one? Yes. Which? Used to be called Respond, now it's called Reply. Yep. Oh, okay, that's fine. So a little bit of both. <laughs> that's yep. So, so what, what target demographic did you pick, just for for your for your own uh, strategy? Yeah, so we we ended up with small businesses. We also cater a bit to personal brands, so we're in the midst of choosing a target customer, um, like company wide at the moment. So, for the most part, it's small businesses, and then we're going to be more specific in the coming months about what we mean when we say small businesses. Right. I'm just going to go and run through the, the items again, and then we'll try to go through the exercise of filling those out right together and step by step. So the purpose, the core values, target demographic, the brand promise, the elevator pitch, the three-year target, the annual goals, the quarterly, monthly, and cycle goals, and the priority projects. So as I, as I mentioned, it doesn't sound like we fill this one pager one item at a time, right? It sounds more like you fill the gaps here and there together. There might be some steps that are not that simple uh, when you're starting out. So how would you advise listeners to actually fill this page and potentially using your own experience? Where do you start? What is step number one? Yes. Well, the very first time I did this, I did go top to bottom and just like fill it in like a Mad Lib. So it was was, uh, maybe not the easiest or the best way to go about it. I would say step one is to figure out the purpose, kind of figure out the vision, purpose, vision, that bigger, bigger idea. How do you go about it? It's an excellent question. It typically comes from the company itself. So this purpose that is on our sheet is, is basically our company vision. So very easily, I just copied it <laughs> from our company vision. Um, if you're leading a marketing team, I, hopefully you're part of those conversations and can shape it at the company level. And then it's basically fill in the blank when it comes to the marketing and, and let's say you're not the marketer, the marketing director, you're actually the CEO or C-suite and, and you need to figure out a, a purpose that doesn't sound fluffy yet that is inspirational enough. Do you have any, any tips like to help people figure that out? Yeah, I can give you another exercise. So we, we do use this marketing one pager still and we've also added what's called a, a vision framework and it comes from Jim Collins. And it has a bunch of different elements to it. It has core purpose, core values, so some of the similarities to our one pager. But it also has something called vivid description and BHAG. And the BHAG stands for Big Hairy Audacious Goals. And in the course of going through this vision framework, there's questions to get you thinking about okay, what what gets you excited in the morning? Like what what kind of work could you be doing that even if you weren't paid for it, you'd still be doing or once this job goes away, what kind of work will you still be doing after this job? And so it really gets at the things that you're personally passionate about. I think at that CEO, founder, personal brand level, entrepreneur level, um, a lot of the work that you do probably has to have some element of that in order for it to be work that you can be excited about and be excited about why you're putting in all the work to, to make the thing work. So we use that vision framework exercise we did it earlier this year and it was super useful, especially the vivid description part where you kind of describe what your company wants is going to look like in five, 10, 15 years and write a, we wrote a press release. Like, well, actually I wrote a New York times article, of course, a fake is. New York times article, <laughs> um, just to kind of see what, what life would be like if all of our dreams come true. And then you work backward from there. 
Yeah, and that's something I've discovered from you actually a few months ago when I stumbled upon your profile again. That really, really was a nice thing to see. So this exercise is basically, as you said, it could be it could be a press release uh, set in the future, it could be an article in the New York Times, but it's really about yeah the things you've accomplished, the things you want to accomplish in the next 5, 10, 20 years. And it, it might sound fluffy, but actually works really well to focus on what matters the most. And it's quite interesting. And I did, I never worked on the vivid description thing, but I did work on my purpose quite a lot for, for the podcast and, and why I'm doing it. And, and I finally managed to go through like a purpose that is simple enough and I can say it in three words. And I, I love to say it every time I can, which, which is I fight marketing bullshit and I love it. <laughs> and it doesn't really say where I'm going, I'm going, but I think there's going to be enough marketing bullshit out there for the next 50 years that I think I'll still be I'll still be trying to fight it. But to go back to the exercise then, so how did you go about doing this vivid description? You said you wrote it, but how did you did you did you meet with your team? Did you had like did you have like three calls with your team? How did you go about understanding that this is actually where I want to go as a team? I did zero calls with my team, which in hindsight might have been the wrong move. Basically, my approach to it was I feel like I have a very strong intuition of knowing what Buffer is about, what my team values, what um, historically what we have done, what's worked for us. And given that information, like I felt pretty solid about moving forward with it. So I, I went through the vision framework exercise all by myself. And after I had done it, I shared it with our CEO. And he and I spent, we probably spent a couple of weeks on it, but truly like it was asynchronous. It was, you know, he would look at it one day and I would look at it the next day for, you know, 15 minutes each. So total, like maybe a couple hours together on it. And the reason why I did, I went, so I did it and then went up to the CEO with it because it needs to be aligned with, with our company or overall company direction. If marketing is headed off in one direction and product is headed off in a different direction, like things aren't going to work. So we had to be pointed in the same direction. And yeah, then I kind of feel like I'm close enough to my team that I know <laughs> it sounds super egotistical, but like I, I know what they think and where where their hearts at. And so it was a pretty easy sell once I was done with it from that higher level. And then I shared it with them and got their thoughts and, you know, not much change there. Cause it was all pretty good to go. From someone who probably doesn't have the, the intuition that you have, because that's not a trait that a lot of people have, right? Or someone who maybe works on their business on their own or have a small team. So how do you advise people to actually come up with this kind of vivid description about where you're going to go as a company, what you're going to accomplish? Yeah, I think in the in the way that the framework works, you start with your purpose and your values. And then from there, the vivid description fills out. So definitely start by understanding where you want to go and what's going to guide you, what values are going to guide you to get there. And then a lot of it for me was like, what what would be exciting for us as a team? Like what would make it what would make a real difference in the world? What would what would making good on this purpose look like if we were to, for instance, like let's say we want to give people a greater voice on social media. Well, what does that actually look like? Well, it could look like um, a lot of different things. It could be small businesses find new channels and that everyone becomes a you know a social media expert in, in a way or we're able to give that to them. And then what does that look like? It means maybe we build out a whole library of courses and we are the go-to social media educator. And then, oh, education. Well, maybe that could mean like we get certified courses or we start uh, some higher education programs where we're actually training people. And if you think training people, oh, cool, maybe we're actually putting people into these jobs. We're having internship programs and it, it spirals pretty quickly. As you can tell, like there's lots of different directions to take it. I, I would encourage you just to go down those routes and kind of see 
oh, if we were to explore this, what would that look like? Like, what could this look like? And then if that sounds like an exciting path, then figure out, okay, what would it take to get there? That's kind of the, the basis I work towards. So our, our vivid description had things like, we're going to build out an editorial team. And then my mind went to, oh, cool, it'd be fun to have a magazine someday. Like, that would be cool and innovative. And so the magazine's in there and all these different things. You don't have to do them all, but just the actual process of dreaming big and thinking big that informs the strategy that you set in order to get there. And you can check that strategy every so often and see, is it still the path you want to be on? Is it still the way you want to go? There's something quite similar. I'm just remembering now, and I'm actually having to Google it because I'm going to not going to remember the name of the book. I'm going to find it in the next few seconds, mm-hmm. but I read it. That's actually Seth Godin who recommended this book on this podcast. And it's about this, this teacher, this art teacher, I think, or music teacher. At the start of every year, he makes his students write a letter to themselves that they'll have to open again in one year. But like the exercise of like writing a letter to yourself, they're saying, you know, dear future, or I think it's more like dear past, uh, dear past myself. Like in one year, mm-hmm. I would have done X, Y, and Z. I've achieved that. Da, da, da. And the moral of the story is that through this exercise, the students would keep going to class. The students would be super engaged and they would be much more willing to, to participate, much more willing to, to have good grades and all of that just through this exercise. So it, I think it's something quite powerful for people's brain. I'm going to find the name, The Art of Possibility. Yeah. That's the name. That's great. Yeah, so it's a great book. And I, th- I think it goes back to the storytelling part of our brain. It's, it goes back to the fact that we need vivid description of things. We need stories. We need things like that are that we can imagine in our head. To, to be to be engaged and I think that connects very well with that so this vivid description um, uh, we're spending a bit of time on it but I think it's absolutely critical um, as you said if you don't know yeah. if you don't know where you're gonna go then all the rest doesn't really matter yeah it's an interesting concept too I've I've done some counseling before and like therapy and coaching and I've been involved in these processes I haven't done it like I've given coaching to people I've, I've been coached and I've been counseled and things and often I will have like these these types of exercises will come up in that kind of setting too where you know picture your ideal day what does it look like and then knowing that how do you get there what can you change today that will get you closer to that ideal day where do you want to be in five years and ten years in life and then work backwards from there so I noticed that I, I have quite a I think idealism is one of my personality traits I took a, a test once it told me that so <laughs> I feel like I I know I have no problem thinking up ideal things and working toward that. And I think it's a useful trait to have when it comes to vivid description and kind of vision setting stuff. And in fact, that reminds me of when I started my consulting business, I actually had printed pictures of my family, pictures of the future house uh, house I want own, and a few things like this. So just planning out for the future, like you're, you're waking up for this, you know? And actually I looked at, looked at it back a few, a few months ago and realized that I've accomplished almost everything in there without actively thinking about it without like saying, you know, every, every day looking into it, but it just naturally happens when you're very clear on where you want to go. Like the universe has a way to like bring you to this path. Obviously it's not the, the universe. Let's be clear. It's you as uh, working mm-hmm. on it every day, but unconsciously your brain has understood that this is where I want to go and you're taking the right decisions then based on that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's similar if, if you take it down a level, I think we've seen this, uh, it's a concept called scoreboarding, which is basically, if your team has a goal, make that goal visible. So show it in Slack once a day and everyone looks at it, put it in the front of your Trello board, put it, if you're in an office, stick it on the office wall or make a screen that has the the progress on it. And just seeing that number and seeing that outcome is, you're right, like subconsciously you're aware of it and working toward it even when you're not consciously, even if you don't know you're doing it, 
So absolutely. So that's for the, the kind of the inspirational, the purpose, the goal setting, the, the, the big picture thinking. And the next part of the template is a bit more, should I say, tactical, a bit more grounded in facts and grounded in, in science, should I say. Uh, so the target demographic, the brand promise, the elevator pitch, the three-year target. So how do you how did you go about setting those up for Buffer, especially the, the target demographic? People, people do seem to struggle a lot with that and picking the right audience and the targets and, and, and all of this jazz. So how, how did you go about it? Yeah, so the target demographics, some of that comes from our product research team. We can just kind of take their their findings. I'd say if you don't have a product research team, some of the stuff we've done in the past is to survey our customers or survey our audience, find out um, some common demographics that, that they share. If you can get even, even more specific, you can uh, kind of put those folks into different cohorts and then see, you know, this cohort here of maybe small business owners, like, what kind of revenue do they bring in on average? What's their lifetime value? What's their acquisition cost? You can bucket them in terms of which ones actually are successful using the product and those become your target customers. So that's one one way of doing it. When it comes to the three-year targets, you're getting like all my all my dirty secrets of how I kind of wing some of this stuff. Like a three-year target for us is basically, well, what's what do we do in one year? Multiply it by three and <laughs> maybe add a little bit so it looks good. <laughs> you know, like I have no process beyond that. Like our, our three-year target is have 250,000 paying customers who find value in Buffer. And honestly, we have 80,000 today and 80,000 times three is 240,000 plus a little bit. So that is the dark science behind uh, setting targets. Now, I appreciate your, your, your transparency coming from someone working for Buffer. I'm not surprised. But there you have it. I think it's it's... Overcomplicating those kind of things can really slow you down, right? And I, it sounds like from your answers, you're not, even though you are taking those seriously, it's important to have those goals. It seems like you are taking th other things more seriously, such as, you know, how to get things done every day, how to make sure that, that your team is happy, how to make sure they're productive, how to make sure that they feel yeah. empowered to do stuff, right? I just want to go Absolutely. back to what you said about target demographic, because we talked mm -hmm. about it a lot on this podcast, right? How to identify your ideal buyer and customer research. We talked about it many times. One thing I haven't shared on the podcast yet is, uh, is to look at the uh, RFM methodology, which is uh, used in e-commerce mainly, but it works really well for other stuff, which is recency, frequency, and monetary value. So basically, looking at people who bought the most recently uh, from you, who bought uh, uh, the most often from you, and who bought the most from you, right? Mm -hmm. And usually when you look at the intersection of the three, that comes the uh, the ideal buyer persona, the ideal buyer profile. And, and I mean, I don't want to make overly like generalize everything, but most of the time it's like the Pareto law or even worse, it's like those 20% of customers make 80% of your revenue. So I would definitely recommend people to, to do that first before they, they pick a, a target audience that is very vague. Now, as a business like Buffer, you mentioned, you know, small business is, is your target audience. I would say that most companies can't and shouldn't pick such a broad audience until they are at the scale that Buffer is, right? They really need to focus on a very, very small amount of people first. I think that's very fair to say. Yep. So moving on to to the three-year target that you basically the formula is you multiply by three, uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever big goal you have. Yes. And then annual goals, I suppose you, you also, you draw a line and you start looking at, okay, working backwards. Okay. Pretty <laughs> so much. I, I can get you multiply uh, a month tar monthly target by 12. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'm just, I'm more curious then about the, the things 
you decide to do and the things you, you decide not to do. Because I think that's the meaty part of, of the strategy. It's like, as I mentioned in the intro, it's like it's, it's as important to say that we are not going to do this that it is to say we are going to do this. So in Buffer and, and, and in general, how would you how would you advise people to to select the right thing to do and not going overboard? Or how do you advise people to do that? Yeah, when I think of saying no to things and saying yes to things, I think there's a, there's a couple reasons to say no. The first is we say no to anything that's not within our values. So having that value statement up top is a great place to start. That'll eliminate some options right away. Then the second thing, like I think you alluded to, is that time element of like there's so many different things to try. Why choose this over this? Or what if you try to do it all? And that's definitely not a not a good recipe too. So I'd say if you're just getting started, one thing that we found really useful is the bullseye exercise, which is from the book Traction. And it's basically an exercise that runs you through, I guess, 19 or 20 very popular, common, use, useful, different tactics and channels. And it helps you identify which one has the biggest potential, which one will work for you initially. And that should get you going with a couple of channels. And that's a great place to start. And then I joined the, the Buffer marketing team at a point in time when content marketing was already quite established for us. And so I stepped into that role and was able to keep it going. And now we have... Uh, a few established channels. We have content, we have PR, we have community, and those ones are in social media and they, they do great for us. And so we've shifted now. So we want to continue to do great things there, but we also want to expose ourselves to new opportunities. And you know, maybe there is a new strategy out there that could work and we want to validate that or invalidate that. And so we take this 70, 30, 10 approach where 70% of our time and resources are dedicated to the channels that we know are working where 30% are dedicated to exploring new channels that have been validated by others and we think might have potential, and then spend 10% just doing wild and crazy stuff. And that has helped us say no to certain things and say yes to other things. I think it's helped, or we don't say no to certain things. I guess we, we limit our time so that there's only a chance to do the work on certain things, You know, 30%, 10% of the time. But anything is still out there and a possibility. It's just we've boxed ourselves and only have us have some constraints about how much time to spend with that kind of stuff. So I, I had to do the math though. So that's 110 percent in total. So is it? Oh, is it, it is, isn't it? Is it's it, 60, 30, 10. Right, 60, 30, 10. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. And of course. So and there you have it. I think for, for Buffer's case, you are known to have grown using content mainly. I mean, am I right to say that content marketing is still the number one driver of new signups? Yeah, our number one driver is word of mouth and then search and then content marketing. Yep. But search comes from content, right? It comes from mostly. It comes from content and word of mouth. Yeah. Like people searching right. buffer and coming to us from there. Yeah. Yeah, branded search and branded search. Yep. Uh, uh, the the reason why I'm coming to that is like I would also, based on the book Traction, that is a great book, I would also advise, if, especially if you're starting out or even in established business, to focus your attention on those one or two channels, one or two key projects that will should deliver the most uh, yield for your, uh, for your business, right? And avoiding picking 10 channels and try every single one of them and say no one, and none is working, right? I mean, in, in, this, in this day and age, competition is fierce. Uh, there's a lot going on. If you try one thing for a week, uh, like content for a week and think it's not, it, oh, it's not working. We're not going to do that. It, it's going to fail. So how do you pick then those top, top projects, those top, top activities that should be like crucial for your, for your business? 
Yeah, we always try to start with um, a minimum viable test. So if there's something that you think is worth trying, then what's the smallest scoped project that will gain, get you results that you can base a decision off of? So let's say if it's content marketing you're exploring, rather than going out and starting a blog and giving it six months to see if you reach certain goals, you might try guest posting one or two places, or you might start a medium publication and you know post from grab other folks' contributions so it's less of a, a time commitment or cost for you up front. So start small, know what will be a significant result for you, and then test against that, that result. Another way of doing it is observing what's working for others in your space, because it's almost like learning what they have already validated. There's risk in that, of course, of you know, your kind of borrowing tactics and potentially flooding the market with similar type stuff and just jumping into a place that's very competitive already. But there is that is a way to shortcut it a little bit if you see stuff working. Um, you can also look outside your own industry, for instance, not, maybe not industry, outside your own market. So for us, we might not copy what Hootsuite and Sprout Social are doing. We might look to a company like Intercom or like Hotjar or someone else that's you know a, a tech startup or a, a marketing tool but is not a social media marketing tool. We can borrow tactics from there and know that they've already been validated to a degree. So there's a couple of different ways to make the, the starting process a bit shorter. And what about the, the skills that you might have or the interests that you might have? How do you factor that in into testing new things? Yeah, that's a good one. I think for marketers, it's almost a requirement now that you are quite generalist with a lot of skills, especially if you're a marketer on a, on a smaller team. Or if you're not a generalist with a lot of skills that you that you're open to learning quickly or you're open to finding solutions quickly. So we try not to limit ourselves based on the skills that we have on the team. We try to approach it from a mindset of um, if this is effective and if we, if we think it might be effective, let's gain those skills, let's learn those skills and, and figure it out. So for instance, we don't have anyone on the team who's really good with, um, who's an ads expert. We don't really do much in terms of ads. But we wanted to explore that channel recently. And so we had someone on the team who was very good at jumping into something brand new and learning it. We had him jump into that and learn it and get like a base level understanding of whether this channel makes sense for us or not. And it worked. Nice. I mean, the channel didn't work, but he worked in oh. figuring it out for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ads are getting more and more expensive. And so for this year, then, what are the top three plans for Buffer? Yeah, so we, we're in this, this kind of cool season of, of marketing life at Buffer where we're doing some really big foundational things to our product. Um, and we're excited to, to get to the point where we can start shouting about all that cool stuff that's happening there. And in the meantime, it's, uh, it's kind of a season of life for us where we can be the ones shipping stuff and launching things and making some noise. So engineering is marketing is one of the channels that you'll read about in the traction book, but that's one that we are going to dig into a bit more in the coming months and hopefully ship some new tools and some new features, um, kind of like standalone things, standalone apps. We're definitely going to do more on the content side of things. It's going to look a bit different. So we have a, a podcast that's been growing pretty well. We have a new strategy on our blog. We're going to expand into a content library that people can go to for resources, um, turn the existing blog into more of a, a magazine publication style content. So that's a, that's a pretty exciting one for us. And then we're also exploring the referral, kind of the viral ambassador side of things. Um, we, we technically are starting an ambassador program at the moment, but again, doing that minimum viable test route and seeing like if this idea makes sense or if we need to try a different type of idea. So we're in the process of 
discovering what that looks like for us. Exciting. Um, switching gears now, because that, that sounds all nice. Uh, but I want to go back to, uh, to your career in the past. And I know you've been sharing a few struggles, a few challenges uh, with me already, which is, which is nice. But like, if you had to pinpoint the biggest marketing fuck up of your career, like the one that you remember, like the big lesson you learned from that, and it can be like three months ago, it could be six years ago. What would it be? Oh, I can think of a lot. A very small one. Wait, well, I don't know if it was small. I sent out my our CEO's home address in the footer of an email to all of our customers once that was, that was not great, <laughs> but, uh, his, his parents got a few notes, but that was all, I don't know if this one counts, but recently, like this is a very, one of those strategy artsy things I don't really understand, but like not having the same strategy on the marketing side or not interpreting strategy the same way on the marketing side as we do on like the product company side. So, um, we recently went to a more of a funnel approach or I guess like a, I guess a funnel approach to how we assign different metrics to different areas of the team. So we would, like the pirate funnel, for instance, marketing owns awareness and acquisition and product owns activation and retention and revenue. And I took that up very literally. So I was setting like number targets and I mean, as you've heard how I set number targets, so like, I don't know how literally that actually was, but like mine was very numbers focused and theirs was more vision focused and just that generic split. Um, I recognize now as a, as a mistake where I should have spent more time getting on the same page. I'll give you one more. I could keep going for a while, but, uh, <laughs> one more was, I think in the content marketing days, there's, and I, I was, I was deep in content marketing, maybe three, four, two, three, four years ago. So things have changed a little bit since, but it was like, it's a competitive space when you're trying to grow, grow a blog and get attention to your content. And there's a lot of less than ideal things that you can do to, to get the word out there. And so I did some things I'm not super proud of, like, you know, pitch guest posts and write guest posts solely for the purposes of a backlink. And, um, I was very tempted to buy followers at one point just to like goose that I was going to write a blog post about it. So like, I think I was technically like, I don't know, I felt my, my conscience felt okay since I was going to write about it, but, um, just like these shortcuts, I think the shortcuts is where are always so tempting when it comes to these highly competitive channels. And uh, I've definitely fallen for a couple before. So tell, tell me more, because that's part of the second, the other question I wanted to ask you in terms of the sleazy, shady marketing tactics you might have used in the past. So guess, uh, pitching guest blogs so you can get a backlink, you would treat that as being sleazy. And a lot of people would say that's quite smart. Um, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that. What other stuff, like buying followers as well, that's pretty sleazy, all right. What other things have you tried or thought of trying in this kind of dark oh, yeah. area of marketing. Yeah. Well, I'm lucky that, so we don't do sales at Buffer and we don't really do lead capture, lead gen, lead nurture, lead scoring. We don't really do much with leads. So I'll just start off by saying that has probably spared me from lots of mistakes that would have been perfect for this section. Um, there's lots of different lead, lead things that can happen. But even with that, like we've, I've either been tempted or I've done it. I'm, I'm sure I've done it. It's just not, not treating our email lists with a lot of respect, like treating them more as these, transactional lemons to squeeze more and more out of. And that can take the form of a lot of different things. It can take the form of us running our list against our user list and finding which ones are not buffer users and then kind of blasting them with CTAs with no real value add in that email. It can be using that list to try to send send traffic to webinars or these these co-marketed things that we are 
<laughs> this is this is really inside. So sometimes you might have noticed this from our chat. Like I'm not a super pushy person, or at least I don't think I'm a super pushy person. And so when I'm connected with someone who's pushy, like I want, I'm a, I'm a people pleaser. Like I want to please them. And so maybe like three years ago, you would have received an email from me asking you to sign up for a webinar solely because I wanted to please this other person that I was working with on a webinar. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it probably just felt like a normal webinar invitation, but like that's not the right motivation to be sending email emails to folks. Like I'm trying to meet a quota for someone else who doesn't even work at Buffer. So that, there's a few. I can keep going if you want, but yeah, maybe I'll... Give me another one. <laughs> give you another one. Okay. Well, let's see. So we would... Uh, I don't know if this... This wasn't black hat at the time or bad at the time, but we would heavily promote our our blog posts on Twitter and other social media. Like I think the the ratio, and we talked about this on the blog, the, ratio, the proper ratio of promoting content on your social media feeds is like, let's say nine of everyone else's content to every one piece of your content. And we, we fully did it backwards. We did one of everyone else's and nine of ours, which worked and was great. And we wrote about it and told people, like, try this out. I don't know if I regret saying that or if like I'd fully backtrack on it, but like looking back now, I can see like that that wouldn't fit this, the strategy that we have at the time, that, like we have at the present day for our social media accounts. It might have made more sense back in the day when you know, social media was a bit different. But just that very nature of flipping, flipping things to be so self-promotional, I think, is a thing I would not do today. I'd hope I wouldn't do it today. Well, I can definitely put you in the white hat marketing section uh, or box, <laughs> should I say. Because all the stuff you shared... Yeah, they're probably gray hat, but even then I would say... Not that bad. <laughs> they're not that all right, you know? Like I can, oh, that's I, good. Yeah, I can tell you I can tell you a few other things we've seen. Yeah, it's, there's just no other... There's just plenty of other black hat, sleazy, aggressive tactics out there. Uh, and the ones you mentioned are definitely not that much out there. They're not... Like, clear my conscience then. Yeah, that's they're great. not like <laughs> good marketing per se. They're not like the perfect, perfect good marketing. They're not terrible either. Uh, but anyway, thanks for sharing all of those because that was quite insightful to, to understand more of, of who you are and, and why you're doing certain things. You seem to have a very good understanding of who you are as a person. Maybe that explains, like the mention you went, like you did coaching, counseling before, and it sounds like you probably got a lot of insight out of uh, those. I don't want to extrapolate. Uh, so maybe that's something that would you encourage people and listeners to, to get a coach, to talk to someone, a therapist, a counselor? Absolutely. Yeah, I was I was really lucky too. And this could be, you know, if you don't want to go that route, just like having management be a key thing for your company. Um, I was really lucky to have a wonderful manager when I started at Buffer and taught me a ton of different things about life and marketing and all this stuff. And I continue to be managed really well. And I think I've learned that myself that I take it very seriously, the, the privilege of managing other people. So... Sometimes I may treat my manager as a therapist in some ways, which which he might not like. But um, there's also going outside of yeah outside the company for therapy or coaching. Um, just like self awareness is so important, I think in life and and in marketing too, it helps you understand yourself and it also helps you empathize with others. Yeah, absolutely. I concur. I I, I talked to a counselor recently about my anxiety uh, that I suffer from uh, kind of off and on and definitely helps. And I know not everyone has the means to pay for a therapist or uh, counselor, uh, but I would encourage if, if you're feeling stressed, anxious, depressed uh, to talk about it to someone, whoever it is, right? Family, colleague, friends, because that helps a lot. So switching gears to something a bit less serious, should I say, but what do you think marketers should learn today 
that will help them in the next uh, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Yeah. In terms of like hard skills, I think we talked a bit about this idea of being a generalist or at least being having a growth mindset when it comes to trying new things. So like that's a super key mental state to be in. Specifically when it comes to skills, I think skills like like basic HTML, CSS is something great to know at this stage. If you want to get even deeper into coding, that can be a great skill to have as a marketer. Data analysis and understanding understanding data at like a theoretical level so that you're drawing the right conclusions from the data that you see, but also from you know maybe even learning SQL or learning some different data analysis techniques can be really useful. Um, and then like the generic stuff too, like storytelling, writing, all those all those good things are, are great to have. And then to take it up a level, I'd probably say a couple of things that will set you up on a great path is to really bring empathy into the work that you do and to think about the things that you're doing, how are they being received by others, put yourself in someone else's shoes. Like you yourself get tons of marketing coming your way all the time. Like you, you experience this stuff as a consumer, what feels good to you, what doesn't feel good to you and kind of extrapolate that to the work that you do. And then the, it's interesting, the question about like, um, what will help you in 10 years. And it's almost, I almost want to answer with that question. It's like, if you think 10 years ahead, I think that is one of the most helpful things. If you're always thinking a bit more long-term, like for instance, I'm doing some very tactical work at the moment. I'm help trying to grow one of our blogs and I'm just, I'm just like in it. Like I am, my head is down. I have no idea what's happening all around me. And I'm, I'm going down these wormholes of like, Oh, well I'm never going to grow this because this thing isn't like this. And it's, and this isn't working and let me try this. And then it, it, I need someone else to pull me out of it and to think, oh, well, you know, you don't have to be checking the numbers daily because they're not going to, like, who knows what conclusions you can draw from daily, check them daily, like check them monthly, check them every 14 days, like zoom out a little bit and see these, the aggregate of the work that you're doing. And that's been super helpful just to have that, that longer term perspective, which I know not everyone has the the luxury of doing that if you're needing to grow today but um if at all possible pick your head up and and look out can be really useful yeah absolutely what are the top three resources you would recommend our listeners could be anything like podcast books yeah from like a a motivational standpoint i I like the concept of just doing the work like if you want to become a better marketer if you want ways to grow just start trying stuff like get a side hustle have a little sandbox you can play around in um, then when it comes to the, like tangible things, I'd say the Reforge website is great. Um, it's a website run by Brian Balfour. Um, the email, the marketer marketing stuff is done by Susan Sue, and they have a great newsletter. They have great blog content, and they also have a like seasonal, maybe every couple, one, twice a year, uh, course that you can apply to, which is great. There's an awesome book called Anything You Want by Derek Sivers, and it's kind of about like business building, but I took a lot of marketing insights from it. I think his approach is very unique and um, definitely has that empathy element to it. And there's a cool series called Forget the Funnel by Georgiana Lottie and Claire Solentrop. And they're two wonderful friends and great marketers. And they have a, a really cool perspective that they bring to marketing too, which I think is is close to yours, Louis, a bit of non-traditional marketing advice that it works and gets great results and feels good to everyone. Yeah, she's good to everyone. Yeah, I actually met Claire uh, Sudentrop recently in Dublin. She went to uh, the conference called Learn Inbound. I met her for coffee. I interviewed her on the podcast as well. And I was on the Forget the Funnel episode talking about marketing strategy actually a few months ago. So yes, I would recommend Forget the Funnel. Absolutely. And the book you mentioned, can you repeat the, the title again, please? 
Yes, Anything You Want by Derek Sivers. Never heard of it, so I'll definitely check it out. Uh, thanks so much for sharing those resources. Thanks also for being open and super transparent about your struggles and the mistakes you've made and, and the way you pick goals uh, for your company <laughs> and for the marketing. I really appreciate that. I know listeners will probably like that very much uh, too. So before I let you go, where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Yeah, so I have a website, kevinlee.com. It's K-E-V-A-N-L-E-E. -E -E. And I'm on Twitter at Kevin Lee. You can message me on LinkedIn. And then I'm occasionally on our Buffer blogs. And you can go to buffer.com to find more about Buffer and about our content. Well, Kevin, thank you so again for your time. And thanks for all of your insights. Great. Thanks, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. 
Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.